It's been a very fruitful and, and full couple of weeks. Um, we are grateful to have Dr. Cho here. I listened to his lecture, uh, the second lecture uh, this week online, and I thought it was invigorating and a good um, program, and I've already said to him I hope sometime in the future he'll return and share his gifts with us. This is the last class, the last Sunday in a year-long program uh, looking towards um, next year's program, but we've been studying Embracing Transformation all year long. And I just wanted to do a quick review. I was gone in the fall with an absence uh, due to Fred's work, um, but we had Catherine Grebe here who studied Luke and Acts, uh, looking at how change brings struggle, conflict, but also a change of view. And bring off, that often brings a new appreciation for God. Dr. Meiskins was here in the fall for our Advent series, and he looked at the transformation today, looking back from the first century views, and how to view faith in a post-truth era. Dr. Barnett was here with us in early 2019, looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also struggled but resisted tyranny and faced change with a tremendous example of a religious commitment. Laura Schroff was here, and we had the book read and read The Invisible Thread, and she talked about how to embrace change through stepping out into unknown terrain. Dr. Bermudez was here and talked about how parents can transform as they learn about new skills and brain research and new ways to address challenging behaviors. Dr. Kennedy followed, who talked about a national identity and how transformation of our view of ourselves and others changes the robust picture in the face of many conflicts. And Kathy Stout led our Lenten series and she taught on what it looks like to change as a Christian in today's contemporary culture. So we end today with Dr. Cho, who speaks of trauma and change and how the Psalms and Job challenges us to grab hold of vitality, balance, freedom, and majesty, finding our way as humans in the world of change. So thank you for participating this year. Uh, we look forward to our program next year, and thanks for being here, Dr. Cho. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be back uh, and to have a, a series of a, a kind of a longer time than a single time uh, to share with all of you uh, uh, my ongoing research and interest in the book of Job and trauma and also in the book of Psalms. So we'll continue uh, today uh, at looking at the book of Job through the lens of trauma uh, and hopefully we'll get to praise, but I can't promise that. We are talking about the book of Job after all. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> uh, this is Part two, and I wanted to begin with a brief uh, review of what we talked about last week, because uh, what we will talk about today will map onto, uh, structurally speaking, what we did last time. So uh, uh, last week, we talked about trauma and language in the book of Job. And 
we said, we found out that language is a victim of trauma, that both human beings in our bodies, in our brains, uh, experience tra- a trauma as an, an assault on the linguistic capacities, so that a, a person who is victimized and has experienced traumatic experience is unable to speak about the trauma. And we talk about how trauma is a pre-verbal experience, a pre-verbal memory uh, that escapes linguistic uh, enrapturement. And therefore, we introduced the theological term of redemption, that language itself, to a certain extent, needs to be redeemed, even as we recognize that language, to a certain extent, is a means of recovery and restoration. Because one of the important steps in recovering from traumatic experience is to be able to narrate the traumatic experience, to tell your story about what happened before, during, and after, so that you are able to move beyond uh, that experience. And we said that that, that, uh, that structure uh, maps onto what we find in the book of Job, that language itself seems to be broken uh, in the book of Job. We looked at, we looked at uh, this through the lens of the animal imagery that we find there, how uh, Job finds in the world of animals uh, a broken world, when in fact traditional wisdom literature found uh, in animals a source of wisdom and life. And then we said that the brokenness of language in the book of Job reflects the brokenness of the world itself. And then we finally thought about the possibility that when God speaks out of the whirlwind in chapters 38 to 41, that God is not uh, re-traumatizing Job. Perhaps a little bit of that also happens. But in fact, God is, in in, in certain respects, trying to address uh, Job and saying, redeem the animal language. Job has begun to formulate in a dystopic, uh, uh, dystopian way and saying there are other sides to the animal world. There's in fact some beauty there. There's some, uh, uh, some life there that can be redeemed. But I want to say uh, today that more than language re- needs redemption because trauma shatters more than language. Right? Language is not the only thing that is shattered by a traumatic experience. So I want to kind of open up our discussion for today by asking you, what are some other effects of trauma? What other things uh, does trauma shatter uh, in one's life? Um, confidence. confidence right? there's, a, there's a sense in which you kind of, uh, you, dis, you kind of, you are unable to inter- engage the world outside of you because you don't have that confidence, right? There's distrust of the world, of others, of just living life becomes a is fraught with fear and, uh, and anxiety. Like language, spoken language, also our internal language, our thinking. <clears throat> yeah. So there's your internal mind, the world, kind of the, your internal representations are shattered, right? Your, your very thoughts, the foundations of your internal thought life uh, is broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 How do you how do you interpret what you're experiencing to yourself? That becomes disrupted in a in a fundamental uh, way. Yeah. Yes. Balance. Even just balance when you're dealing with the trauma of everything else. Mm-hmm. Right. So right, the traumatic experience seems to dominate 
uh, your imagination and your life, it kind of takes over and defines everything else around you. Yeah. Did you? Well, I was trying to say the ability to talk to God, and I, I wasn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, your relationship with God becomes problematic. Like, do I talk to God, or do I even believe in God anymore? How how does trauma really affect your relationship with God and what you believe and think about? The existence, the goodness of God. Right. Yes? I don't know if actually the term short-sighted means, but I remember once mm. I went through a traumatic experience and I felt like I could only see mm-hmm. a very short distance yeah. because I was so shocked. Sure. There's constriction to your, maybe also your physical uh, view as maybe also your mental view. You can't imagine anything up outside of that narrow, uh, narrowly defined Arena of that is, that's defined by trauma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. We often think of trauma as a mental illness, and it, of course it is because it affects the brain, but it's also a bodily uh, 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 disease. Um, uh, I think I mentioned uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who has a book called "The Body Keeps the Score." And his entire thesis is based on the fact that traumatic experience is not only psychological or mental, but rather, in fact, it's written in our bodies. The body itself uh, carries and embodies the, the, the effects of trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. We close off. Right. We close off. Close off from the. Uh, from the outside world. And these are many things that uh, happens uh, when we experience trauma. And we, we can't talk about everything, uh, but in, in, the, in the book of Job, I want to talk about the relationship between trauma and narrative. And, and by narrative, I think I mean more, something more than a story, but rather something that embodies our internal thinking, our values, our assumptions. And, uh, and I want to talk about how that uh, many of the things that we value and makes us whole, makes us balanced, makes us able to live in a peaceable way in the world with one another and also in our relationship to God becomes shattered because of trauma. So, uh, another question. What are some of your core assumptions about the world and yourself? Like, if I said, what do you read at the, fundam- at the foundations of your belief about yourself and the world, what, what, what are those assumptions? What do you believe in? I'm a part of it. That you're part of the world. <laughs> and and how, how would you describe that relationship? Well, I think because I am a believing person, mm-hmm. I feel connected, <clears throat> connected to yeah. other people in the world, uh-huh. some of whom I don't agree with at all, sure. but I still feel connected yeah. and I feel a, a love. So I feel a part of it. So you, you, you feel a love, you said. Yes. There is a sense that in which your connection, while fraught and perhaps sometimes yes. tense, is there's love there, right? Yeah, that's important. What other fa- assumptions do you have? Well, you might also become more aware of the fact that there are bad things in the world. Sure. Whereas before you may have had kind of this, oh, the world is beautiful. Yeah. So you begin with the assumption that the world is nice, it's beautiful, and then experience tells you bad things also happen. 
right? What's the balance, what would you say, between the good things, the beauty of the world, and the bad things that happen? What, what's the balance in your mind? <laughs> the bad things always threaten to overtake us, right? Yeah. Right. The news are a great source of bad news, but they, I think, I don't know why human beings find good news boring <laughs> uh, for some odd reason. Yeah. Yeah. So you assume, you begin with the assumption that life is beautiful, the world is beautiful, but then you become wise into the fact that there are bad things, bad people, etc. Yeah. You were about to say something. Okay, so you you become aware of the bad things, right? Yeah. To, to a certain extent, you're saying you assume that where you stand is good, that you're safe, and that what you need to keep by, keep an out on is the evil and the bad things that are out there that may come and impose on you. Right? So you're actually you're play, starting at a place of kind of good and beauty. There's resonance there. Yeah. So, so uh, you don't believe that you're disconnected, but rather knowing the world and knowing yourself, they go, they grow hand in hand. There's harmony to a certain. There's there's meaningfulness in that relationship. Uh, yeah. I think oh sure. Maybe also, there is um, again the older you grow. Mm-hmm. Um, you realize patterns Mm. and so while I'm you know freaked out let's say about climate change or something Mm -hmm. like that I have more of a sense that you know we have weathered not no pun intended but Mm -hmm. and not speaking of climate change but other things in the world that the world has transformed beyond them in times so you have a sense that even if bad things happen, experience tells you that we can endure through that and actually survive and come out on the other side whole, perhaps. Maybe even better sometimes, right? That we can get through this bad patch, right? Um, according to uh, uh, some psychologists, there are some core assumptions that most healthy uh, persons hold. Uh, and I'm taking this from uh, Jonathan Bullman, uh, and, and, and a core assumption is that the world is benevolent. I think we resonated with, with some of that here. Even if you recognize that the bad things happen, fundamentally, we tend to think, perhaps because we want to or we need to, we think that the world is benevolent, that, uh, that bad things don't happen for no apparent reason, and that we will, in fact, enjoy, be able to enjoy life even if there are uh, something, some evil that impinges on our reality. Second is that the world is meaningful. That there is a cause and an effect. That things just don't happen out of the blue. Whether it's climate change, whether it's an illness one suffers, we tend to think that there is some cause and effect. That we, either we polluted the environment, therefore the, uh, the, the earth is dying, or maybe we've ate something bad when we were young and, and therefore I have a stomach ache. Um, or anything, something we tend to think about the world as meaningful, that they're being somehow being able to 
explain our experience of it. And we assume that the self is worthy, that we are, um, uh, that we are, uh, that we are lovable, um, that we are uh, value, of value to our friends, our family, and perhaps also even to our enemies, that we are of some value uh, to them. And I want to add that narrative, stories, especially stories that you tell about your own life, maybe some kind of myths that we have in our minds, uh, uh, are shaped by and are carriers of our assumptions about the world. Right? The stories that are important to us, uh, they carry, carry the assumptions uh, uh, about the world. And narratives embody and enact our assumptions. Uh, assumptive world, uh, and these are some of the basic ones. Of course, narratives and stories can embody other kinds of assumptions and values. Uh, for example, if you uh, if you if you go to service today, or maybe you're coming from uh, service, uh, the pastor probably preached, and oftentimes a pastor will tell you a story, because a story embodies the lesson that the pastor wants to convey to us. Even Jesus. Uh, told stories in the form of parables, etc., because those stories embody the assumptions, the lessons that we learn. Um, of course, we also tell our children uh, Happy Mother's Day to, to, to the mothers among us um, uh, because the stories carry and embody the lessons. And if you have the story, somehow we believe that you're also carrying with you the values uh, that we have. But core assumptions are shattered by the traumatic experience. So when we experience trauma, those assumptions are shattered. And that also means uh, that uh, the traumatic experience shatter narratives and the possibility of storytelling. Right? The assumptions are shattered and the stories that we used to tell about who we are, where we come from, where we're going, become shattered. And therefore, sometimes you cannot even uh, uh, tell a story anymore because the, the old stories have been shattered. And what are some of the shattering mechanisms? We uh, uh, touched upon some of this. It's intrusion and hyperarousal. When you have a traumatic uh, event, experience, many times it comes and visits you. And when it does, and we talked about this last week a little bit, it dominates your psyche, your mind so that everything else becomes uh, defined in relationship to this traumatic event. And you see everything through this, the lens of the trauma. So the world becomes dark. The world becomes dangerous. The world is fraught with anxiety and worry, and everybody seems to be out to get you, uh, etc. But when you have trauma, when you have uh, uh, traumatic experience, the, the op very opposite also happens. People, uh, some, some of you talked about defending and cutting off yourself from the world. Your connections to the world uh, 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 become severed. Uh, and so there is this, both this hyper-arousal that, that, is, that happens because of intrusions of traumatic memory and also this desire to keep that off, like keep that away from you, so that you, in fact, not only keep the traumatic experience away from you, but, in fact, you push away everything else as well. So there is this... Uh, tension between hyperarousal and constriction that happens uh, when uh, when you have experienced traumatic uh, events. This is what 
Judith Herman says, the result is that a traumatized person is stuck in between the extremes of hyperarousal and constriction, between reliving the trauma and amnesia. And I think here what we see is that it, uh, tra traumatic experiences negate the very possibility of being able to tell a coherent life story. Either the only story that you, you tell, the only story that you li relive, and the only memory that seems important to you is the trauma event, which visits you as if it were happening again and again in a repetitive way. Or you forget. And in fact, you push away not only the trauma memory, but also all kinds of memory. So you're stuck in a past that is always threatening to be a present, and a present that doesn't have a past or a future. Uh, and a story, of course, has Aristotle tells us has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when you have, when you are traumatized, that becomes impossible because it's the trauma becomes the ever-present, tyrannical present that defines all of your reality. You either enraptured in it or you try to keep it away, so that there is no beginning, there is no end, there is no past, there is no future. So narrativity itself becomes assaulted and becomes impossible. So your life becomes incoherent and you're, you're living in a kind of dystopic, a nightmarish present that is defined by that trauma. So we can say that narrative is a victim of trauma or narrativity, the possibility of telling a coherent story about one's life that expresses one's values and one's dreams and hopes uh, becomes impossible. So narrative... So narrative also becomes is something that needs to be redeemed. Even as we say that narrative is a means of recovery and restoration. We need to be able to tell our trauma story. To have a beginning, a middle, and an end. A past, a present, and a future. To be able to recover from trauma. But the very possibility of doing that is the very faculty that trauma, in fact, assaults and destroys. So it becomes a, a very intensive relationship. In Job, we see that narratives are shattered in Job. Uh, we see this in the very structure of the book. We talked about this briefly last week, that the Jobin tale, uh, kind of the, I th what I think is an older tradition, an older story about Job, which is the, uh, the prose narrative that frames the entire book. I think somebody came along and said they, in fact, literally broke it in half. Right? That story, that, which has a beginning and a middle and an end and is beautifully structured. Um, I, I've written about this, so I can say that with some confidence, that it's beautifully written and beautifully structured. It's broken in half. And inserted in the, in the middle is this poetic dialogue that is difficult to understand, difficult to read, and sometimes difficult even to stomach, even if you're an outside observer. So trauma informs, breaks the narrativity of the book of Job. We also talked about how the dialogue breaks up. If there is any structure that is meaningful in a, um, uh, in a dialogue form, is that the dialogue should happen in a, in a structural way. But we talked about last week how for the first two cycles of the dialogue, Friends are fairly uh, uh, collegial, and they take turns in speaking. But wh when the third uh, round of speeches come around, 
they speak over each other, they're yelling at each other. You can envision that if this was a play put uh, play on, a, on, a, on the stage, that they would be getting up and pointing their fingers at each other and yelling with fumes coming out of their ears, maybe their caps uh, filling up. So, so the dialogue, the collegiality, in fact, just totally breaks down. So there is, there is also that. So narrative is a shattered. And the shattered narratives reflect the shattering of the assumptive world of Job. The assumptive world uh, uh, that, uh, that says that the world is benevolent, the world is, uh, uh, that the world is uh, meaningful, and that the self is worthy. All of that goes away. And this is most true about narratives about suffering. So, we'll talk, we'll, so now we'll get into so, uh, the text now, and we'll, we'll look at some of the texts that tell us about the ways in which the narratives are, are broken down, and the ways in which the narratives might be recovered um, this way. So we'll first look at uh, the Job's friends. And we, I've just taken uh, one of the friends, Eliphaz, as our exemplar here. Um, and we can t- turn to chapter 2 in your Bibles. I have the text here, but you can look around. So it, it, it might be helpful to be able to look around the verses that I highlight. So, chapter 4, uh, Job speaks in chapter 3 for the first time at the seven days and nights of silence. Uh, and then Eliphaz is the first to respond. He seems to be the ringleader of the friends. And he says, Can mortal men be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants... He puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. What is, what is Eliphaz saying here? Why is, this, why is he talking about angels and all of this? What to say? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you can so you can say they failed at their job. That's why you're suffering. Okay. You can read it this way. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think he's insinuating? He's talking about not even the angels are without error. What What does that imply about Job? So Eliphaz is being nice. He's saying, Job, you're suffering. You probably sinned. Right? He's not saying that directly to Job. He's saying, even the, even the angelic beings are at fault in, before God. How can we as human beings claim, ever claim to be righteous? So Eliphaz is simply insinuating, Job, you're smart. You know what I'm getting at, right? You're suffering. You must have done something wrong. Right? Yeah. And so that's at the beginning of the um, of the uh, of the of the dialogues between Job and his friends. This is towards the end. This is the last chapter 22 is the uh, last uh, time that Eliphaz speaks. And the point becomes really clear here: Can a mortal be of use to God? Can even the wisest be of service to Him? Is not your wickedness great? So here he. He does away with any kind of civility and just says, "You are, you are, 
really bad. You're a, you're a great sinner. There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges from your family for no reason. You have given the water to the weary to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty-handed. And the arms of the orphans you have crushed. If you know anything about uh, social responsibility, social ethics in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, is that you're supposed to take care of the, the widows and the orphans. And Eliphaz is saying, Job, you haven't even done that. You are the worst of the worst. So whatever civility Eliphaz was play-acting in the beginning goes away and his speech becomes acerbic. And he's saying, so he's saying that the reason why you're sinning and the reason why you're suffering and suffering so greatly is because you have sinned greatly. Right? So Eliphaz is saying there is the world is the world is meaningful the world is understandable and the and the story that uh, that makes sense of the world or an experience of it is that if you sin you 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 suffer okay so 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 that puts Eliphaz in a bad light but Eliphaz says this also he says as for me I would seek God if I were in your shoes I would seek God. And to God I would commit my cause. How happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of Shaddai. Uh, you should translate it, uh, the discipline of the Almighty. And he also says, agree with God and be at peace. In this way, good will come to you. If you return to Shaddai, you will be restored. If you remove your unrighteousness from your tents. So what's the story? What's the narrative arc here? What is what? Are, what is a friend? What is Eliphaz advising that Job do? Repent. Repent. And then what will happen? Then you'll be healed. Right. So in in the friend's mind, the story goes like this: You sin, you get punished, and here uh, Eliphaz says, God is not punishing you. God is reproving you. God is giving you a chance to repent. So repent. And, uh, and Eliphaz reads the suffering as a sign that uh, Job has sinned. Therefore repent, and what will happen? You will be restored by God. I don't know about you. It's hard to like the friends. Uh, uh, so don't, when you have a friend like Eliphaz who needs enemies uh, kind of thing. Uh, and I think it's easy to think that. But I've wondered about the fact that Eliphaz and the friends speak on and on and on. That the book of Job somehow found it important to represent the viewpoint, the theology, the story that Eliphaz and the other friends tell Job. And I wanted to say that perhaps that's because there's a lesson to be learned here. Eliphaz, I think, Eliphaz and the friends don't come to torture Job, even though I think at the end they end up doing that but rather because out of true concern. And what they're trying to do is returning Job to narrativity. Like, he, he want, they want Job to get out of the suffering and move on to repentance and restoration. For them, they are trying to do their best, in fact, to move Job along the, the, the stages of mourning, let's say. 
And in their mind, the theology that they've learned, and in fact, if you read out the other books of the Old Testament, this seems to make sense. This is to a certain extent orthodoxy. If you sin, God punishes you, and if you repent, God will heal you. And I think they are trying to be helpful to Job, even in even though in their trying to be helpful, they in fact are torturing Job. Yes. There's a sense in which if this story is true, then I'm I am not I don't have to be part of that. Because I'm I'm not suffering, therefore I didn't sin, right? And and because I didn't sin I'm not suffering. So it protects us. The stories that we tell about other people protect us from the same fate that they're experiencing. Sure. Yeah. Certainly. 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 Uh, right. Right. They're to a certain extent they're thinking simply theologically and saying the only actual uh, cause to anything that happens in the world in human life is ultimately God. Therefore, the suffering, whatever the cause, the Sabaeans came, the Chaldeans came. The, there's, there were natural events that happened uh, that caused uh, Job, uh, Job the suffering, but to a certain extent, they are assuming that God is the ultimate cause and that you have to get your relationship right with the ultimate cause of all these things before it can be restored. Uh, and to a certain extent, Job also thinks like that as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, the concept of original sin, is that only a Christian concept or is that a, a, an Old Testament concept too? Because I've never seen it discussed in relationship to Sure. I, I I would say that uh, that the that the doctrine of original sin is a late development uh, within Christianity that has been read back into uh, the Old Testament. So one once you have the concept of original sin, we can we might be able to find it everywhere, or, or perhaps all in chapters two and three of Genesis. Uh, but it is something that we've read back into uh, because of later developments. The reason I'm saying mm-hmm. that is some of the poetry or some of the sure. <clears throat> Yeah, 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 sure, sure. It, but it, yeah, I, I don't think the Book of Job assumes uh, original sin that yeah. somehow all human beings are, are by virtue of existence sinful or have fallen. Yeah. Well, we look for something simple, like mm-hmm. a simple construct. Yeah. And so, you know, something bad has happened, and so you want to go for step back. You're bad, then this, then that. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course. If we can control our sin, then we don't have to suffer. Right. Uh, it gives a, a human beings control. Well, yeah. it makes me think of <coughs> sure. Yeah. 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 The 
one of the sins of the friends is that they judge. They they see X and they assume Y. Right? They they judge and they think that they know exactly what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also strikes me in Job that we as the readers know from chapters one and two mm-hmm. that it's not God. Yeah. This. this is important, right? Because well. I think we know that God, to a certain extent, has some responsibility, but we know that Job is not sinful because both the narrator as well as God has told us that Job is extremely pious, that he has not, in fact, sinned. In fact, he is the paragon of piety. Yeah. Um, just to move on here, the corollary to this schema, this story, is this, that if you're pious, then you are blessed. Right? And here, I think, we have to bring in the figure of the Satan, not Satan, but the Satan, uh, because it is precisely this causal relationship between piety and blessing that is at the, to a certain, the theological heart of at least the narrative frame of the book of Job, which is that, is it this? Right? That's what, um, those blessings, if, if you say that piety causes blessings, then, does blessings or a desire for blessing cause you to be pious? Right? Joe, uh, the, the Satan's asks, Joe, uh, asks God, is it for nothing? Is it for no reason that Job fears God? That Job is pious? Isn't it because he knows that if he's pious, that he is, he will be blessed? Right? So to a certain extent, I would, I would say that the Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and, Elif, uh, and so far, are the mirror image and, and therefore, somehow, somewhat of a represent, representation of representatives of the Satan and, and the test uh, uh, that is being placed here. There is another narrative that Job's wife uh, kind of introduces here about suffering. Job's wife says, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. And here, uh, I think Job's wife is saying, if piety leads to suffering, and I think Job's wife truly believes, because she knows best. A wife knows all the sins of the husband, and the husband knows all the sins of the wife. Uh, We can try, but we usually fail at hiding such things. Uh, So if anybody knows, the wife knows that Job is pious. And when she sees that Job is suffering, She's like, this is not right. This is truly innocent suffering. And she says, if that is true, then there is no God. Or at least there is no God worth blessing or worshipping. That's what she's saying. And she's also saying, if piety suffers, piety causes suffering, then it's probably good reason to give up and despair and, and die. Right? She is to a certain extent asking uh, the questions that really in fact uh, we modern readers of the, of the, of the book of Job are uh, one, one answered. And, and well, I guess Epicurus was the first one to ask it. And, and I think McLeish in his uh, play, JB, which is also a rewriting of the book of Job, puts it this way. If God is God, God is not good. If God is good, God is not God. And that's the same question that Epicurus asked thousands of years back. That is to say, if God is God, if, he's, if God is almighty and powerful, then and there evil exists, 
that it must be because God is evil. God is not interested in stopping evil. Or, if God is good, then God must be not all-powerful because God is unable to uh, uh, stop evil. And I think uh, Job's wife is asking that question that interests so many of us, uh, a question that has persisted and will continue to uh, haunt us even after this uh, even after this uh, time together. I will not be able to solve it for you. I'm sorry. Um, well, Job's wife has had a bad rap uh, within the interpretive tradition. Not all interpretive traditions, but especially within Christian tradition, uh, because uh, St. Augustine called uh, Job's wife the devil's handmaiden. Harsh. Very harsh. And I think wrong. And here's why. Uh, here's what God says. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's all Greek to me, right? <laughs> And what God is saying is, uh, this is when God is saying to to Satan, he still persists in his integrity. Right? This is what Job's wife says. You still persist in your integrity. In fact, so we usually translate it as a question, but in fact, in the Hebrew, it's exactly the same as what God says. That's the phenomenal suffix. So things in red have been changed to from he to you. Of course, that makes sense. So the wife, in fact, says what God says. And I think to some extent, she represents God. Uh, and, and so she's. Uh, so it, this can be translated. You still persist in your integrity. Curse God and die. The curse God and die part. I'm just going to get rid of too. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to do some magic trick. I'm going to get rid of the curse God part, okay? Because the wife says, Barak Elohim Famut. Barak. What does Barak, Barak? Blessing. Blessing. In the Hebrew, literally, it says, Bless God and die. So you could, in fact, it's the very opposite of cursing God. So, in fact, you can translate this, You. Are still persisting into your, you're still holding on to your integrity. Good. Bless God. Even if you should die. It could be translated as that. Right? Job doesn't hear it that way, but it can be translated as that. In fact, in, in the prose, uh, prose frame, uh, uh, we have both the language of blessing God and cursing God. And the same word, Barak, is used for both. Uh, so, uh, and, and this, this, there's a tradition behind it, uh, behind it in that, uh, people uh, in the ancient world tried to not actually curse God, uh, so they didn't want to write it down. So this is kind of a euphemistic way of saying, you understand what I'm saying, but I'm going to write Barak. Uh, so, it can be translated, and perhaps should be translated as curse God in that, because I think that's what Job, uh, heard. But it can also legitimately be translated as bless God and die. Uh, so I think, uh, some people have come around to calling Job's wife the theological pivot of the entire book. And in fact, I would say that Job uh, will struggle with this question. Does the fact that I am an innocent sufferer mean that there is no God, or at least a God who is worth worshipping? And he will also struggle with this. If I am an innocent person suffering, 
Should I die? Should I choose death? Is death better than living in this way? So Job's wife's question, in fact, animates the theological agenda for the rest of the book. So I want to uh, I want to say that Job's wife is not the handmaiden of of uh, of uh, of the devil, but rather the if anything, the, the mouthpiece of God uh, that asked the hard theological question uh, for Job to consider. So, Job responds. He says a lot of things. We can't look at the entire book. I wish we could. Uh, but this is something that he says towards the end. If you see this as a response to the kind of narrativity that Job's friends and Job's wife is proposing to, uh, to Job, what do you think uh, Job's response. What would you say is Job's response? Guesses? What does he respond to the friends who say that your suffering is evidence that you have sinned? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the friends advise him, agree with God. Agree with God, meaning your suffering is a sign that God is displeased with you because you have sinned. So agree with God and repent. And Job says to that, um, my lips will not speak falsehood. Right? I will. He said, I will hold fast my righteousness. I believe that I have not sinned, even though I suffered tremendously. So I can't agree with you. I cannot, I'm, not, I'm not going to lie simply because what you're telling me is orthodoxy. He has, he has that, I think that's his response to, uh, uh, to, to, um, to the friends. How about to the wife who says, curse God and die? I mean, we, we recognize that there are other ways of reading that, but if, you see, if, if wife said, uh, curse God and die, what does, what's Job's response to that? Yeah. Well, you might say that... Um, <clears throat> Mm-hmm. And, you know, the breath of his God is within <coughs> his spirit. Then he couldn't curse God. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that would make him dead. And there's a question then in my mind about what death means or yeah. what death is <coughs> in this yeah. case. So Job refuses to curse God because to a certain that he recognizes that the source of his life is tied to God. And that also means that he's by not cursing God, he's also holding on to his life. So he's rejecting to a certain extent uh, his wife's advice to both curse God and uh, to die. Right? Anything else that you've noticed here that you want to lift up? He's not giving God the benefit of the doubt. We go back to the original sin. That's not good. Friends sort of imply, well, you, you, you may have sinned, but you don't, you don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And Job is saying, no, I haven't sinned. Yep. I'm maintaining my innocence. <coughs> yeah. 
sticks to his guns. He says, I am innocent. Not more than that. I am righteous. Not just innocent. I am righteous. I hold on to my righteousness. Okay? So, Job rejects this narrative. He says, this doesn't make sense. Not in my case, he says. So, one of the lessons that the book of Job teaches is that suffering is not always a sign of sin. And this, to a certain extent, would have gone against the grain of other teachings in the Old Testament. And, and of course, in that in the ancient Near East. And, to, and I, this may not be true here, but there are Christian cultures also, churches, uh, that believe this still. That suffering, to a certain extent, is always a certain sign of sin. Uh, I, my, uh, my, my mother uh, recently had a health scare. And something that she just came out of her mouth was, I must have done something. I'm like, trust me, I read the book of Job, I, I know the Bible, and I think, I think you're okay. Right? <laughs> so I assured her, and, but you know, mothers don't really trust, uh, uh, trust, uh, trust, trust, trust their sons. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, so my, my, my brother is a, is a doctor, and, uh, he does, she doesn't listen to his advice about medical issues. He'll go to, uh, she'll look it on the internet. He's like, I found it on the internet. I think this is more correct. So sons have very little uh, authority over her. Yeah. Well, my sister who had cancer three times in her life, when she, she had the third cancer, by that time uh, she was able to do the genetic testing. Mm. And she found out that she had had the genes that yeah. always make cancer. Yeah. And she said it really made her feel better. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think this runs deep because we want to find the simple answer to our predicament. And usually, when it comes to suffering, the response to a certain kind of a, a knee-jerk response is, "What did I do? What did I do wrong?" Either whether you call it karma or God or the devil or whatever, you think that you have done something wrong to deserve this. So Job rejects that. And if we read the entire book of Job. The lesson precisely is the opposite. That in the case of Job at least, suffering is not a sign of sin, but rather a sign of God's trust and favor. Right? Because the very cause of his suffering is the fact that God found, favor, uh, God found Job to be uh, exemplary and wanted to lift up Job as, a, uh, uh, as an example of piety. And I think... Yeah, sure, go ahead. But to a certain extent, yeah, he's find, finding it difficult to say the, the stories that I used to tell myself and the stories that you're telling me, I'm rejecting all of that. So narrativity, to a certain extent, comes under question, and to a certain extent, it's destroyed. So yes, I think I think you're you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Job also, be, to a certain extent, rejects the. the that the uh, existence of innocent suffering means that there is no God or that there is no God who is worthy of our worship and love. I put a question mark there because I think Job rejects that but at the same time doesn't know how to respond. And it is in search of that God who is still worthy of, uh, of worship and honor uh, that, uh, that, that he's searching for. Oddly, we, we start with how trauma 
-hmm. pre-verbal, yeah. and we talked about the effects of that. I think on the opposite end of the coin, the concept mm -hmm. of God or the spirit is also, there's there are no words. Mm -hmm. We cannot really express. And so mm -hmm. these simple formulas or whatever don't do it. And it seems to me right. that Job sees uh, that spiritual... Yeah, the beginnings of a negative theology where you say, you define God by telling, by saying what God is not. Right. 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 God can't be, you know, pinned down with human words. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Some, then, something of that. Yeah. 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 Something mysterious about God. Yeah, I, I think that you're right. And I think Job, to a certain extent, uh, we'll talk about this, Job does reject death as an option. Uh, but I think Job also considers death as an option very seriously. And we talk about this too. But at the ultimate, he will reject it. So, Job has rejected these narratives, these stories. And to a certain extent, trauma has forced upon him uh, 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 no other option. Uh, he cannot choose to believe in the narratives that his friends are telling him and his wife is trying to suggest to him because it doesn't make sense. He knows that those narratives, those stories can't uh, explain his experience of reality, of the world. And so he is in search, I think, throughout the entire book for a new story to explain his experience. And for the sake of time, I, was, uh, I will simply kind of point us to the, uh, to the verse, that certain that we all know, uh, the passage that we all know, that brings some of the strands of the new narrative that is emerging uh, to light. Uh, this is Job 19:25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says this. Uh, and what do you see here? What, what what are some new elements here that? Uh, that you didn't see in the other stories that his friend or and his wife were trying to tell him. He validates his relationship with God. Mm -hmm. God is with him even though mm -hmm. he's in a really hard time. What do you see that? Redeemer. Redeemer, okay. So you're identifying Redeemer as God, okay? Mm -hmm. Of course, because uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God uh -huh. and, and part of the triune sure. God that we believe in. Sure. For me, it's... That's obvious. It's yeah. obvious. Yeah, yeah. It's never about the fact that God gives us suffering. No, no, God suffers with us. Mm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and we know that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has uh -huh. suffered yeah. the ultimate for mm -hmm. us. So you see God here as on God and on Job's side, as redeeming Job. But the, the problem to a certain extent is the fact that throughout Job, God, Job has, throughout the book of Job, Job has been saying, God, why? You are my enemy. You are the one who's hunting me. You're the one who's assaulting me. So that's, it's problematic, but I, but I think you have, you're onto something that it is in fact God, and later Christians, Christians will come to understand that Redeemer as in fact Jesus Christ. For us as Christians. Sure. That's, that's yeah. the essence. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, he's not reading into it from the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Out of the blue, this redeemer to a certain extent comes comes out. Yeah. Yeah. So many of your Bibles will have the redeemer capitalized, and uh, within the Christian tradition, I think we are right to a certain to a certain extent to see God, uh, to see Jesus Christ, and to see God there. Uh, it's I I I don't know that Job would have thought. Obvious, that obviously this is his God. Um, but I think there are some arguments to be made. A redeemer, we know that the book of Job knew the book of Isaiah. Uh, and in the book of Isaiah, especially chapters 40 to 55, uh, the underlying word for redeemer here is ga'al, uh, go'el, is used exclusively to point to God. God is always the redeemer or the one who is redeeming so, and then, so, so Redeemer, at least in the Isaiahic tradition, means, refers to God. And, and this word, that at the last, um, the Hebrew word is aharon, and we don't know whether or not this is actually adverbial, it's telling us about the time, but rather it could simply be translated as the last, the last one, the final one, as a noun. And this is exactly the, the, the epithet that Isaiah again uses about God in such phrases as I am the beginning and the end and there is no other Isaiah says Isaiah says this repeatedly and using the same exact Hebrew word so in fact the Redeemer and the the last one here the last one might in fact be referring to God as the Redeemer um, there are other problems here. This verse is problematic. The Hebrew, as I told you that the Hebrew is really difficult, like the Hebrew here is very, very difficult. For example, in my flesh here, yeah. in my flesh, uh, the skin has yeah. been destroyed. The, in my flesh, I shall be destroyed. In the Hebrew, the in is actually, could be, probably should be translated as away from. So without my flesh. Uh, but, uh, so, so there are some problems here. So, so we see perhaps a redeeming figure uh, in this verse. What else do we see? I'm wondering, again, uh, I'm looking literally and I'm thinking on my side, and that would seem like there is, yeah. there is an alignment where sure. you know, mm-hmm. I am now alongside of God or God is alongside of me rather than around or above her. Yeah, somebody on my side, you know, who yeah. who is for me yeah. and not against me. Yeah. So help me a little with the Hebrew there. Uh, that's also problematic. <laughs> the, the, is, is Lee? Uh, is the Lamed? The Lamed can be uh, Lamed of interest, as in like for for my sake, or it can be instrumental Lamed because by myself or or I myself will see it. So it, that also is somewhat problematic. What? Redeemer lives, and I think, so, so Redeemer lives, who is for me, and I, there's cause for praise there. And there's also something like life beyond death. My skin has been destroyed. I'm dead. 
I'm a fleshly being, Job's saying. I'm dead. And even without my flesh, and I think the Hebrew translation should be that, I shall see God. That is, there is some agency, some consciousness, even after death. So what is beginning to percolate here is a possibility of redemption and the possibility of life beyond death. Um, uh, I see that we have two minutes left, so I will go through the rest of the, uh, of the slides rather quickly, skipping over, over a lot. Job begins by saying, I want to die. Let the day perish in which I was born. Uh, fascinating passage. We could talk for 30 minutes on here, but we'll skip this. Chapter 3, he says, I want to die. Right? Why did, not, why did I not die at birth? Come forth in the womb and expire. But he gets, at some point, he begins to say, a mortal comes up like flower and withers. So death, but then he moves from talking about flowers to trees and saying, for there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, that it will sprout again. And he starts to imagine that perhaps human beings can also die, perhaps also come back to life. He doesn't say definitively, but he at least begins the imaginative journey towards thinking about life beyond death. And that's how we get to verse chapter 19. And he also says, talks about the possibility of a day in court with God and say, God, I'm going to argue that I am righteous and I'm going to win. And he begins to think about a Redeemer who is on his side, even from chapter 9. So, so chapter 9, he says, there is no umpire between us, between God and me, because he's like, I need an empire who is on my side to protect me from God. But he begins to name it, an umpire who is on my side. And then here's uh, the blood being a witness in heaven, and then uh, who vouches for me on high. So he begins to think about the possibility of some body, some being, or even my own blood, vouching for him, for Job. And that's how we get to the Redeemer here. And I think it informs that. And so I think Job begins to tell these stories, new stories, that will have tremendous effect in the way in which he's able to live through trauma and perhaps even uh, uh, come towards praise. And of course, uh, Job at the end, God at the end, does show up, and Job does have a, have a day in court with God. And God says what? Job, God says, you friends, Eliphaz and your friends, you have not spoken what is right of me, like my servant Job has. So Job gets affirmed. Job wins his lawsuit against God. Uh, uh, and and that's, that's the new story that Job is able to begin to articulate uh, through the process. I, I'm sorry I just rushed through that, but uh, I thank you for your time, uh, and uh, I very much enjoyed our, our conversation here. Thank you. Thank you.